Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm grateful to be here. You've got a pretty interesting career. There's a lot we can discuss, but I want to focus on, on a couple of things. You know, you were a, a musician, and then you became a very successful tech entrepreneur. So I, I want to understand how that happened. What were the kind of key moments there? Uh, sure, I, and and I'll sort of I'll sort of tailor this conversation to what I think I know about about your audience and who they are, because a lot of what I'm known for and a lot of what I'm asked to talk about is kind of that that gritty rags to riches solopreneur yeah. type of vibe and and i think there's a lot of a lot of merit to that i mean that's a lot of the essence of yeah. who i am but i think sometimes lost in that and i'm excited about this platform to get into some of the more more technical and thinking man's aspects yeah. of this like i like this like it's a it's a very strategic game that you have to play to yes. basically to bootstrap your way up in this world without indenturing yourself via debt yeah. or capital partners. Like if you want to, if you want to build yourself up through business and also own your own thing, you have to not only be extremely gritty, you have to be extremely tactical and shrewd. What do they say? Good decisions come from, come from experience and experience comes from bad decisions, right? Like yeah. I've, I've gotten smart. I've earned, I've earned whatever smarts I, I can lay claim to, but, but yeah, I mean, it started, I was a high school dropout, actually. I I dropped out of high school essentially as a as a strategic and what seemed to me in the mind of a teen, very logical uh, you know, decision yes. frame of like, I don't want to get a job someday. I it was, I don't know why I was so dogmatic about it at such a young age, but I just could not stomach the thought of trading my time for someone else's money at the reduced margin that was the difference between my compensation and their profit. Like I did the math yes. and I got the equation and I just didn't like it. And, and, and mostly, mostly because I just didn't like the way school felt. It felt sort of yeah. oppressive and, and like, like a factory. And I thought, I don't want to do this my whole life. And that, you know, getting a job just seemed like more of the same feeling of school. So I dropped out and I became a musician. I did the, the thing that I could come up with. that was like the most free and liberated, yeah. but could still put food on the table. Uh, and sometimes that's all it could do. I mean, my very first piano gigs, I literally just played for dinner yeah. at restaurants. But uh, but I was free and I got to create and I got to I got to do what I felt mattered and was was what the world needed, which was this offset to this sort of Kafka-esque, sterile, bureaucratic, corporate thing that I mean, whatever. I was a, I was a kid. I was I was an idealist and I was very naive. But eventually I realized that being poor is really hard. Yes. Being poor is really hard. I mean, not not to, that's something that's both profound and obvious, right? Like yeah. being poor is hard. And so uh, most musicians are poor. Most musicians struggle. And, and I think more than that, in the ethos of being a musician, particularly a jazz musician, there is this romanticization of the struggle. Like the struggle mm -hmm. is part of the art. It's part of the lore. Like jazz musicians are mistrustful of, of success in a way. And 
and like you're, you'd have to sell out, right? Yes. And and I was like, this is silly because I was sitting there playing piano in like these, you know, multi-million dollar mansions with, you know, CEOs paying our bills, people that had hired us to come play at their parties. And I noticed the juxtaposition of the two worlds. And there was a part of me that was like, I want to have friends like this. I want to hang yeah. out at houses like this. I want to enjoy it. Like they seem happier than we are, right? And we're we're supposedly free, but we're all like yeah. miserable and broke. And so I, uh, I had this early seed of entrepreneurship planted and, you know, to fast forward through the story, I, all through my twenties, I just one after another, I was, I was bootstrapping businesses. I was starting businesses. I was trying whatever I could get my hands on maxing out whatever credit card I, I had at my disposal. And it took about a dozen failures and learning lessons. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate that along the way through my gigs that I was playing, very often I, I was playing gigs for very wealthy, very successful people. Yes. And I would force myself on the breaks to go out and mingle in the crowd. And I would, and like, let's say I was playing a gala for like the Houston, Houston Grand Opera yeah. or the Houston Ballet. Well, you know, the patrons, the high-end donors at those events, these are some of the wealthiest people in one of the largest, most prosperous cities in the world. And so I'm like talking, you know, I'd find myself in casual conversation at the bar with the, some upper level management guy at Halliburton or, or, you know, a lot of oil and gas in Houston. Right. And I'm talking to very successful people. And, and I realized like, oh, wait, they're not all, they're not, they're not all Ebenezer Scrooge. They're not all yeah. daddy Warbucks. Like they're not all these caricatures. They're like, they're just real hardworking, successful, grounded, focused, strategic very capable people. And, and I, I was very inspired and I, I went, eventually I got the hang of it and started starting businesses that, that worked and they just kind of got better and better. I think I'm on, I think I'm on my fifth consecutive business that's worked and each one has worked a little better. Okay. So this is very interesting. I want to unpack this a little bit for the audience and I said, they can see some of the patterns. The first pattern I'm seeing here is you picked an identity that is different from what most people have. Because most people follow a salaried career track. They don't even know they're doing it. But mm -hmm. they trade time for money because they believe that is the best way. And, and they don't. I have friends who are very successful senior partners in major consulting firms. Like, you know, I used to be a senior partner as well. And they follow this path that earns them a pretty good lifestyle. You know, they earn like $2 million a year. But at the end of the day, a lot of them are disappointed because they felt they should have started their own businesses. They should have been investors. Mm -hmm. so, so the first thing I'm seeing here is that you, you, you found a way to break the identity that society felt you should have. And that's very unusual, right? The second thing I'm seeing is a term I use with clients where I say location is leverage. If you're around the right people, you have a lot of leverage. And you are around some major movers and shakers in the business world. And that gave you access to power, but it also allowed you to see things from the other side. Do you think those two things played a big role here? Or there's something other part that's missing? No. Well, I, I mean, I don't know if that's the whole story, but it certainly is a huge part of it. In hindsight's 2020, I, I, I sure. see now how true it is what you're saying. I think what I had going for me was that both of my parents were people who had who had defined their own identity over the course of their life. They both came from what I would describe as working class, probably yeah. on the lower edge of middle class, but they both they both had parents that were hardworking and very technically competent people. Yeah. My my mom's dad was a geologist 
uh, and my dad's dad was a chemist. So very okay. scientific, technical people. Um, but my dad was a money manager and my mom was an attorney and they were both very successful. And But what they did was they took the technical aptitude-based intelligence that they got from, let's say, their parents, yeah. but they coupled it with a lot broader set of softer skills. You know, I okay. would describe my parents, especially my mom, I would say she was the heart of the family in terms of a lot of empathy, a lot of warmth, a lot of very effective communication. And I'm a pretty serious student now of psychology and behavioral psychology and such. And I see a lot that my mom intuitively did very well in the way that she dealt with people. And yeah. so my parents showed me that if you couple soft skills and hard skills, you can get so much further in this world than you can with either of those in the absence of the other. And so I think, I think that was a good starting point. But what that pairing allowed them to do was really define their own identities in the world. Like they both far exceeded whatever their, their upbringing would have predicted for them, right? They were, they were high performers, they were high achievers, and they blazed this incredible life trail for themselves and really showed me that if you set your mind to something and you couple it with the right skill set and the right approach to hard work, you can do amazing things. And so I did have a very early conditioning that like you are fundamentally both uh, responsible for, but also like the opportunity is there to go out and become whoever you want in this world. And so in high school, when I was a frustrated high schooler, like frankly, most apathetic disenfranchised yeah. teenagers are, I did not accept the narrative that said, well, the next step is to borrow money, go to college, get a job, work, trade 40 plus hours a week for 40 years for a pension or a 401k. And like, you know, my dad was a money manager. So that's the other thing I had going for me is I understood I would say I understood more about macroeconomics at 12 than most 12 year olds, because yeah. it was just kind of the conversation around the house. And I knew, I remember having a deep belief from a very early age. And this is something that I talk about in my book. That's, it's the thing that gets me the most hate in my book. But I think most thinking people in the world will resonate and agree with this, that like, you actually need a lot more money in this world to be okay than what they want you to believe when you're young. You yes. know, when you're young, they want you to believe that like, if you can just grow up and get a six figure job, that your life is going to be great. But, you know, we live in a world that's in a slow yet accelerating march toward a reality where that is not even remotely true, especially if you're getting paid in US dollars. Yes. And I just, I picked up on that at a really young age. I remember reading the four, what is it? The Forbes 400 billionaires list when I was yeah. like, 11 or 10 and and talking going through him i still remember to this day the, the richest guy in the world at that time i memorized his name he was the sultan of brunei sultan haji <laughs> hasanol bokaya muizadin wadaula he's still one of the 50 richest guys and i was like dad how did sultan haji hasanol bokaya muizadin wadaula make so much money and like why don't we do that and he's like well son let me explain how you know oil deposits work and like I just had this very weird view of the world at a young age. And I was like, a million dollars is nothing. And so what it did, instead of making me greedy and thinking, oh, therefore I need more and more and more and more money. What it did was it actually devalued money in my mind altogether, where I'm like, look, if making a hundred grand a year, isn't going to give me a great quality of life and being a millionaire ain't what it people think it is. I mean, the term millionaire was coined in the 1780s by Thomas Jefferson. Like 
if it was a lot of money 240 years ago, surely we can agree it's not that much money now. Yeah. Um, then like, if it's not that big a deal, then maybe money isn't really the currency by which I should measure happiness or security anyways. And so I went after freedom and I went after creativity and I had a grand old time creating my own identity and, and getting to make music and, and be in my bliss all through my 20s. But then at the same time, the economic reality, the financial reality of life did kind of creep up on me and, and overwhelm me. But the paradigm was always different where I never thought, oh, well, the answer is I need to go out and trade my time for $50 an hour or $100 an hour because I never thought that math equation was going to work anyways. Yeah. I was always thinking in terms of I need to be measuring in millions. And so your base unit of measurement determines the decisions you make. And so I never took small swings. From day one, I was only going after businesses that I thought could make me gazillions of dollars because, you know, kind of limping my way along in life just wasn't interesting to me. If I was going to do that, I would just keep playing piano and stay poor. Most people are poor anyways. They just don't, they're not also happy. At least I was poor and happy. Right. Yes, it's a very good point. So there's a couple of things here before I move into the next uh, question. It sounds like your parents served one as good role models for certain primary skills. And second, they gave you this operating system of the world that allowed you to explore who you wanted to be versus almost punishing you or pigeonholing you into a traditional path. Because a lot of teenagers who are kind of not paying attention in school, they want to drop off, society treats them as if they failed. And you know, it leads to confidence issues. Some kids I know even medicated for not paying attention in school, right? It's a pretty big problem. But switching gears here, right? So you started, you mentioned 12 businesses. What I want to know is what compelled you to keep trying? You know, it's funny. That is, that is the single most recurring question that I get yeah. about my story is how did you keep going again and again and again and again? And I think in this life, there's a saying in, in psychology that you get what you like, or in like therapy and, you know, applied yeah. psychology, right? That's like, you get what you tolerate, but also there, you can invert that statement that like, you'll never get, you'll never end up with what you won't tolerate. And for me, people are like, well, how did you try again and again and again? I would not tolerate getting a job. Yes. And in the, and what do you do when you have a deep seated belief about needing a lot of money to be financially okay in this world. And you also have a deep-seated belief about being unemployable or unwilling to settle for, for traditional employment, then, then what? Therefore what? Well, then you just keep trying businesses until something works. So it, like it was never hard. I mean, it's hard. I guess treading water is hard, but if somebody drops you in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you're gonna do it until you either die or you get saved. Okay, so this is interesting, right? So you're very clear about what you will not tolerate and what you will tolerate. Right. Because some people, they're not very clear about this and it's kind of, they, they make, they don't make a decision, they accept the decision that's made for them and they go with it. So I, I want to talk about your online, not online, your learning platform, because I know it's not just online, it's offline and online. So massive sign up, one of the biggest launches. How did you guys do that? I'm so glad you asked. And, and I want to I want to set the stage for the question. As far as I know, I don't want to say we're the most. I, I don't like speaking in absolute unique superlatives, but we're one of the most successful bootstrapped companies as measured by 
kind of call it return on investment in less than four years. And just to quantify that, I started this platform with a credit card that had a $20,000 limit. And I did that as an experiment. I did it as a, as a proof, a hypothesis, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, because because if you think about what my platform teaches the world, we're the world's, we fancy ourselves the world's first complete entrepreneurial development ecosystem. Basically, we teach entrepreneurship in ways that universities and traditional education never could because they just, they can't and won't do all the things that we do for people. Yes. Uh, their charter doesn't really allow it. But part of, of validating our entire basis for our existence is that the average person on a limited budget without Silicon Valley VC, you know, without Anderson Horowitz or Sequoia Capital yeah. honing up and without rich friends and networks and without deep pockets and without having to go borrow themselves, you know, and double mortgage their house that like the average person can go start something and grow an amazing quality of life or, or grow a business that is the engine for an amazing quality of life. And so I felt like in order to credibly go out to the market and say that, it couldn't be, hey, here's this guy who had a series of entrepreneurial success yeah. stories and is now invested all of his money into this platform. How much better of a story is it if, hey, here's a guy who took a credit card with a $20,000 limit and gave himself the constraint to say, let me see if I can build a really big, impactful business that transforms not only my life, but hundreds, you know, ultimately hundreds of thousands of lives through our students with that same $20,000 credit card. Because if I can do that, then it says a lot more about what one of our students can expect to be able to do too, right? And so that was the constraint that I gave myself. And in, uh, we actually surpassed $100 million in revenue in less than three years. We enrolled about a quarter million students in less than three years. And we did all that with that $20,000 investment. Um, and so that's, that's the context for your question. I, I want your audience to have that context of like, yeah. how did, how did we do that? And we did that by, you know, I applied everything that I had learned over the course of 15 previous businesses, uh, at least 11 of which were unsuccessful, but gratefully four of which, you know, at least turned a profit in ascending order of, of dollar amount. <laughs> uh, and the, the last of which, before I started this, I actually was able to exit um, I had my first, it was a modest exit, you know, set multi, low multi seven figure exit. And, uh, you know, I just took everything that I'd learned, but fundamentally what I, I would say is what I, you know, what your audience could maybe take away and say like, what is the secret sauce that allowed him to do this? I spent a year having nothing but a conversation with the market. I didn't. So in September, 2018, I started going out to market and giving everything that I I had to give about Here's how I've done what I've done. Here's what I know. Here's what I can share. Here's my best efforts to help you. I'm not asking for anything in return. I'm not, there's no opt-in. There's like, the only thing I ever asked was like, hey, if you enjoy this video, maybe share it with some friends or, you know, give it a like or a thumbs up or subscribe if you'd like to get more content. All I was building was an audience and I was only building it with a conversation. And I did that for a year and I built up a big enough bank of goodwill and you know what we would call warming up the audience yeah. that when we finally decided to launch a product, A, I had had enough back and forth with the market that I knew exactly what the market wanted. Like, and this, bear in mind, so when we launched our product, this was 2019. So this was pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, pre-great yeah. resignation, pre-great reset. This was before going out and doing your own thing was like the, the fashionable thing to talk about doing, right? 
but I still already, I mean, all COVID did was tap into an existing undercurrent, right? It kind of brought it up to the surface. People were already dissatisfied with traditional shareholder capitalist macroeconomic S&P 500 type economics and, and employment and that whole model. Like there's this adversarial relationship between employers and employees and COVID didn't create that, right? It was already there. And so I was out in the market talking to people about how do you go out on your own back in 2018 and early 2019. And I was getting so much feedback from the market uh, about what they really wanted to know and what they were really struggling with. And I was building up so much goodwill because I was having a relevant conversation with them and I wasn't asking for anything in return that when we finally launched our first course in July, late July of 2019, we ramped up to several thousand students a month, uh, paying students enrolling a month within, gosh, I think our first first or second full month. And we were able to ramp up so fast and get a positive return on ad spend because I took that year laying that groundwork. And I had almost perfect product to market fit because I spent a year talking to the market before I developed the product. Okay. So very interesting, but I want to get into some of the specifics here, right? Okay. So $20,000 credit card, what is the first thing you spent the money on? What, what is the first thing you built? So I started shooting these videos. You know, I, I would I would shoot a video that would be like, hey, here's, I'll just make something up. I don't remember yeah. the, the subject. But it was like, here's four things I learned trying to grow my small business to seven figures, right? Okay. Here's four lessons I learned. And I would deliver the four lessons. And then I would end the video by saying something like, hey, appreciate you tuning in. If you made it this far, you're, you might be a small business owner. Or you might be looking at starting a small business. Do me a favor, like and share this video. You know, I'm, I'm giving this away for free. I appreciate your support. And hey, in the comments below, if there are any questions that I can answer for you or anything you'd like me to clarify from this video, just leave it in the comments below. I really appreciate the dialogue. This is not meant to be a one-way conversation. Thanks so much. And then I would, let's say I would go, I would put that video in Facebook and yes. I might go invest $20 or $50 to boost it to a specific audience. So let's say I would pick, People that listen to Gary Vaynerchuk, right? That's, you know, your typical, I figure, okay, how am I going to reach young entrepreneurs? Well, Gary Vaynerchuk is a good interest category for that. So I'll go spend 50 bucks to drive tens of thousands of, of views of this video. That's not a sales video. It doesn't sell anything. So it yeah. shouldn't piss anybody off theoretically. And I'll go get that in front of 50,000 people that are into Gary Vaynerchuk, just so that I can get a list of questions in the comments to find out what are these people thinking and what do they want to know more about? And I did that with hundreds of videos. So most of that $20,000 was actually spent boosting organic value-based content videos just as a form of market research to get feedback from the audience. And you were never asking for email addresses at this point? No, all I would ask was for them to follow me on whatever platform the video was on. Okay, so that's very interesting. It's a different strategy. So you're posting these videos, getting this amazing feedback. As you say, understanding the audience at what point then did you move towards creating a product and what was that product? Uh, so July, 2019, again, I started posting content in September, 2018. So roughly 10 months later, nine, yeah. 10 months. Yeah. I remember thinking, okay, it's been nine months. I should give birth to something, you know, so yeah. to speak. And, uh, so July of 2019, I, I felt like I had enough information about what people wanted and basically what I deduced. And again, this is, specific to the audience that I was sure. talking to and the problem that I was help, trying to help them solve, which, you know, again, it's not our play. I think one of the mistakes that businesses make a lot of times is assuming they know or assuming, you know, that they're going to tell the market what their problem is. 
instead of mm -hmm. asking them what, hey, what problem can we help you solve? I knew that the problem was that a lot of people desired what they perceived as the lifestyle benefits of going out on their own and having a tech enabled, not necessarily an online yeah. business, but a tech enabled entrepreneurial business, something that leveraged the automation and the, yes. the power of the internet to make it more efficient and give them more lifestyle freedom and some of the, the opportunities that modern entrepreneurship affords. I knew people wanted those perks, but I knew that at their core, they weren't really looking for like, like the specific mechanical tactical information about like how to run Facebook ads or how to set up the Shopify store or how yeah. to structure a perfect offer. Like there's a whole other part of the journey of becoming an entrepreneur that has to precede those technical and mechanical questions. And there's a, and, and here's the thing, the online business or online, I should say the online entrepreneurship or online business education industry is really, really focused on serving the, the technical and, and mechanical and interests of people that have already made the decision to become an entrepreneur. So they're like, I want to sell widgets on the internet. Teach me yeah. how to build a store. But what I found was a less, like it was an unscratched itch. And frankly, a much larger opportunity was the tens of millions of people that want to become entrepreneurs, but they haven't actually committed to doing it because they don't have the confidence or they don't have the clarity or they, they think it sounds too big and scary and risky. Yes. And I identified that market, again, not because I assumed it existed, but, but, but because I went to the market and I asked and I found yeah. out, I heard directly from people where they were at on the bell curve, so to speak. So I created a product that specifically addressed those people. And it was called the Entra Blueprint. And, was and it was a basic blueprint for the, the foundations, like the 101 level fundamentals of becoming an entrepreneur in the modern economy. So it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to build a funnel and run ads. Yeah. It was like, hey, I'm going to teach you the big picture of what it takes to shift from being an employee to an entrepreneur in the modern world. Well, I, I understand it more now, but there, you know, it's a huge white space in the world. And, and I get it because it's a hard conversation. When you're, when you're trying to support people in shifting their mindset, it's a lot more nebulous than helping people build a new skill set. And it took a certain approach, but again, I refined that approach over a year and hundreds and hundreds of videos and hundreds of conversations and hundreds, if not thousands of direct message exchanges. I learned how to have that conversation with an underserved market. And as a result, that course over the next three years went on to be, as far as I know, the best-selling business education course in the history of the internet. That one, the, the original version of that course sold over 200,000 units. So that's quite impressive. So that original course was a set of videos or was it a book or something like that? It was a, it was a set of videos. It was a, an eight, it was six modules plus an introduction and like a wrap up video. So it was eight videos, probably the original version was about eight to 10 hours of content. Um, and one of the things we've learned through iterating it is that, you know, people have shorter and shorter attention yeah. spans. And that every time we compress it, we increase consumption of it. But the original version was like close to 10 hours of content across eight videos. So the original one here was the underserved market you found, which is pretty big, is that people want to know how to make that transition. And they want to know the principles of how to build a digitally enabled business. Yeah, well said. Okay. You, should, you should come write copy for us because you said it beautifully. <laughs> so this is very interesting because there's a couple of things. The reason I'm asking these probing questions is because oftentimes when people think of a successful business, they think, wow, this guy must have put out 6,000 videos. 
you know, you, you must have done so much. But it sounds here that what you figured out is more is not better. Better is better. Yeah. And, and more, more is only better if it gets you to better. Yes. So you put out this course. And here's the interesting thing, because I want people to visualize how they would learn from your principles. And I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here, which are important. So you were talking to all these people. They were writing to you. You were reading the comments. How did you distinguish that this market is the underserved market? Because there, there were surely people telling you things like, hey, great video, but I want to learn how to do YouTube ads. They, I'm, you definitely got right. messages like that. How did you know to go for this market? Yeah, that's a great question. So the videos themselves, this is, this is why you do need to do enough volume in terms of quantity of output and content is the videos themselves were the tests. So okay, over good. the course of those 10 months, I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to guess I probably created around 400 videos. They were pretty short videos, five minutes, I'm guessing? I would say anywhere from five to 15 on average. Yeah. I, I tend to talk a lot. I mean, you, uh, you're yeah. picking up on that already. So sometimes I'd go 15 or 20 when probably it probably should have been five, but I yeah. couldn't shut up. But But you know what? Even that in and of itself, like everything that you publish and you track gives you data. Yes. And so I was putting these videos out and I put them out on Facebook was kind of my primary platform initially because Facebook, I think, gives you the most usable data. data. And I'm just um, going to step in here just, just to clarify something. These videos were all shot at home, basic camera setup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, right here. Yeah. Cell phone. I would say my production quality improved slowly yeah. uh, over time. I mean, at a certain point, I started hiring somebody to actually put captions on the videos. I, you know, I'd go on. <laughs> I found a guy that I paid him. And it was like 20 bucks, you know, 10 bucks a video. I don't remember what it came out to. It wasn't like none of this stuff is really expensive in the modern world, right? With the the gig economy, so to speak. You can always find somebody to do these things. I, I got a little mic that with a, a an iPhone, what do they call it? A lightning bolt plug that yeah. a, little, a little shotgun mic to improve sound. I will say, you know, quick takeaway, audio is 51% of video. Like people will forgive grainy yes, footage, but they yes. will not forgive crackly audio. Yeah. And so, and, and yeah, I got a, I got one of those selfie sticks. I mean, I, I still have them all over. Like literally within arm's reach here, I have like one that attaches to my desk, one yeah. that you can see this one actually holds four different cameras. So I can be on Instagram, YouTube, and, wow, and, that's and two amazing. different Facebooks right here with this little tripod. I've actually got a third one. I actually have three selfie sticks or, or tripods within arm's length of my desk right now. I mean, I just you must I be became an amazing like that guy. to spend time with you, right? You must be this one of these amazing tourists as you're going around with <laughs> three selfie sticks outside the Mona Lisa. So. Yeah, amazingly annoying and in the quintessential stereotypical American, right? So, this but, is kind of uh, so you started these videos, got out the message, then you produced this course. How did you find your customers? Well, actually, let me let me finish answering the previous question about how I knew that that was the yes. underserved market. Is I I knew it from data because you're right. You're trying to aggregate general truth from specific comments can be a dangerous. Yes. You know, you can end up drawing some incorrect conclusions just by listening to the squeakiest wheels, right? Yeah. So. It was actually the the data. And so let's say I put out across these 400 videos, let's say 50 of them dealt with the mindset of getting started as an entrepreneur. And I would get data from Facebook that said on those videos, I was getting, let's say, 60 second or longer views for 1.4 cents. 
And you're saying, and you were saying for those videos, the ones about the transition. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to if I would talk about a more tactical like Google marketing Ads. focus, yeah. maybe I'm getting three cents of view. And so mm -hmm. it was it was the viewer data that the analytics that Facebook was giving me was actually my my clue as to what was getting the the broadest traction with the audiences. I like that. So you use data to see what was most popular. Yeah, because to be clear, I was initially prepared to teach people a lot more tactical stuff around marketing and conversion science and digital yeah. entrepreneurship and funnels because I was a geek about all that stuff. But I found out there was a lot more people that were just like, I'm scared to start. Can you can you give me an encouraging word and, and maybe a clearer picture of what I'm going to be doing? Okay, yeah, that's very interesting because you know what you said is very true. The people who write comments are a subset of the total audience and they're the most vocal. They just mm -hmm. like posting comments. It doesn't mean they're representative. I also know some people write comments. They try to be smart or snarky, but it doesn't necessarily represent what they're really interested in. Right. Because I've seen people complain about something because it's a tactic to get a refund. But if you actually look at what they're doing, they actually like the product, they're using it, but they just want a refund, right? <laughs> So, so, so very interesting. So here you looked at actual data and, and I'm guessing you use that as the primary source and, and as opposed to just looking at comments. So you, you've now. Yeah. And that was, again, that was the 20 grand. I didn't invest the 20 grand in, to get customers. I invested yeah. the 20 grand to get data. Very interesting, which is, which is really the opposite of what a lot of people do. So now you've got this program you've built. How did you get it to customers? Yeah, well, once I, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about having data and, and having product to market fit and and having language that, I mean, I, I had basically tested all the language that I was going to use yes. to promote the course just by talking to the people that I was going to promote the course to. And I knew they were like, they were telling me, they're like, I just wish there was a blueprint for becoming an entrepreneur. So now I knew that naming a product, the Entra Blueprint, and Entre is short for entrepreneur. Like yes. they already told me that's what they want, right? So I, it's like you can get, you can reach clarity a lot cheaper when you're talking to people that you're not trying to sell. That's yes. the number one takeaway here. Don't try to get clear through talking to people that feel like you're trying to sell them because as soon as people feel like you're trying to sell them, buyers are liars. They're not going to be talking to you honestly anymore. When they just yes. feel like you're a giver, they're telling, then they're telling you the truth and you can get clear. And that clarity will allow you to be effective once you flip the spigot over to, okay, now I'm running paid ads to acquire customers. And that's why we were able to get into profit so fast. I mean, I was profitable on my second day Wait, of so running gonna, ads to sell this I, course. I want to go back to a point here. So the way you acquired customers is through paid ads. Yes. So would it be fair to say 90% of customers came through paid ads? I would say that until the last year when myself and the company, but but really more myself in terms of my brand, my reputation, my oh. awareness in the market. It was around the time when I started having a, a random person here and there in an airport actually recognize me. Yeah, That was around the same time when I noticed we started to get customers that we couldn't directly attribute to an ad that we ran. It took a long time. It took okay. a lot of brute force in the market to get to where we were acquiring customers on brand or reputation. And, and I think people underestimate, you know, how crowded the world is and how, and, and granted, the smaller your niche, you yeah. know, the easier it is to get attention. But 
you've got to get a lot of attention from a lot of people a lot of times, like multiple times before they're going to, before they're just going to give you that, that recognition response yeah. that happens in the limbic brain where they're like, Oh, I know this guy. I like this guy. I'm, I, let me check him out up until then you're paying for attention. And so that means not only, you know, in our case, that year that I took warming up the audience that gave me 2 million people that had reduced resistance. That's how many people had viewed my, my videos before we ever ran an ad. And that was 2 million people that I could go run ads to that had lowered resistance because at least they already recognized me. And if they had ever watched me, they had gotten something of value without an ask. And so okay. that was part of it. But also you have to construct offers. Yes. And, and there's a whole offer science that actually allows you to liquidate and be profitable running paid ads. And that, that's a whole other conversation. But again, I'd been a digital marketer for a decade. So I knew how to build a good offer. Okay. So initially everything came through paid ads, video ads. So your video clicked on it, you took them through some kind of funnel page where they then went through something and they signed up. And you you obviously, as a digital marketer, you knew how to do that profitably, right? Because a lot of people overspend on advertising and they Correct. can't understand why it doesn't work. So I'm trying to get the audience to pull out the right insights because what you did is quite amazing. And most people don't get the level of success you get and will never get it. So you you ran these paid ads when you started the paid ads, was that a deliberate strategy that you knew you were going the paid ads route or did you say, I'm going to start you and see what's going to happen? No, I, I always knew I was going to go to paid ads. I, I was using a, a, a specific intentional model um, that was a modified version of something I had observed somebody else doing. There's a very famous digital marketer named Frank Kern. Yes, and I'm back right. in 2017... 2017 and 2018, he was talking about a strategy he called intent-based branding. And what I did was I took his intent-based branding. Now, the difference between what, what Frank was telling people to do and what I did is he was always saying, he was like, always make an offer. He basically considered it to be a waste of money to pay for anything that did not include an offer of some sort. Yeah, I was willing to play an even longer game and say, hey, and, and in fact, my original plan, I, I don't know if I've ever shared this, my original plan was to do what I did for two years. I was going to spend two years yeah. having a conversation with the market, getting clear with the market, building goodwill with the market, and never selling anything to the market. And the only reason I ended up accelerating that timeline is because, as I told you, I had exited my previous business and I was on an 18-month payout on the exit and it was backloaded. So the, the majority of the payout happened in the second nine months. And that company went out of business in like after like 10 or 11 months. And so a little over half of what I was supposed to get paid from that exit, I never got paid. And it was only that additional financial pressure of like, oh, oh crap, I just yeah. got, you know, screwed out of, you know, seven figures. Yeah. I need to get, I need to accelerate my time to, to selling something. That's the only reason I even moved up the timeline. I was going to do it for two years. So this is very interesting, right? So when you were pricing that first course, how much was it priced at? $39. So $39. Wow. So you had to really understand the economics of advertising and get those margins right. There was a very small margin for error. Yeah. And to be clear, I never expected to, to acquire that customer for $39. So yes. again, you make good decisions because of experience and you get experience for making bad decisions. I've been a digital marketer since 2008. I've seen every type of funnel, every mm -hmm. type of offer every type of upsell, every type of checkout process, 
every type of product stack, every time you name it, I've seen it. I've, I've bought the same product at multiple prices. In other words, I've been multiple data points inside of a marketer split test, just so I can see how they handle buyers at different price points. I mean, you know, I've taken this to a, a pretty extreme level of science. And so for us, I knew, I never imagined I was going to get a $39 buyer for $39 in ad cost, even with a warmed up market. My original metrics were, I thought, okay, cold, I think I can get this buyer for 200 bucks. But initially with this pool of 2 million people that I've warmed up, I think I can get them for a hundred. And so my goal was to get an initial cart value as close to a hundred dollars as possible, which I did with a couple upsells. You know, our initial carts, we were getting up to close to 80, $85 on average. And we were acquiring customers for about a hundred. So we were, we were essentially recapturing after merchant fees, roughly 75% of our ad spend on at the point of checkout. But I still knew right out of the gate that course, there's going to have to be a longer tail upsell from that course. A certain number of buyers of that course are going to need to ascend to something else yes. in order for this model to get legs. And so right away after I published that first course, I went into, I, I literally brought some friends together and said, hey, I need to license some of your curriculum. I need to assemble it into a course that we can slap our label on. I, you know, I know a lot of digital educators. And, and literally within the same week we launched paid ads, we were not only selling my course, but we were selling uh, another upgrade course on the back end of my course within that same week that we launched ads. Okay, this is very interesting, right? So let's just break this down a little bit. Okay. So you knew it's going to cost about $100 to bring in a customer. Yeah, and bear in mind, this was $2019 pre-COVID yeah, yeah. before... before Things went mad. Things went mad. Yeah. I mean, that same customer now is probably $300. It's going to cost you about $100. Let's just keep the math simple here so people okay. listening can. So then you also have a program that's $39. So you know there has to be some upsells to get you to about a break-even point, right? Right. And you're going to break even roughly if you can get the $39 cost plus some upsells, but you're still just breaking even. So, so is it fair to say that that's the entry point of your and, and to be clear, I never, I never, I don't think to date we've ever broken even on day one. Never broken even. No. Well, even on day two, you wouldn't have broken even unless you had those better courses to upsell them to. Yeah, we, well, and, and it took, I mean, initially, again, we've compressed time, but initially it took an average of about 18 days for people to get to that. Because, you know, if you're going to sell somebody something for $39, and then uh, try to upgrade them to something that and our, our initial upgrade package was $2,000. Yeah. You've got to way over deliver on the $39 to build yeah. enough goodwill and earn the right to show them something else that's 50 times more expensive. Yes. But what's interesting about this is that there's a couple of things that's counterintuitive. And I, and I mean that in a complimentary way, actually, because you know I've spoken to many, many business leaders all over the world. And Everyone has their own reasons for doing things, but it's very rare when you can speak to someone who can get into the mechanics of what happened, right? That's very rare when you see that in business leaders. So you've got this um, $100 and $100 break even. And then this is the interesting thing to me. You didn't create your own content. You licensed it. Mm -hmm. And then you resold. So it's a, kind of an affiliate model that you had going there. Uh, yeah, I mean, we did a, a little more, a little deeper licensing model because sure. these were people that I had relationships with yeah. and I felt comfortable going a little more serious more quickly, but structurally it's not, not dissimilar from affiliate relationships. 
Okay. Did they also then promote your program because of the fact that you were licensing their content? No, that was that was part of the deal is that we would we we were delivering them customers and we were creating a unique variation of their product that did in no way compete with or constrain whatever else they were doing outside of us. And in exchange for that, we were a, you know, your typical licensing content licensing deal like this might be 20% and and our our royalty cost was like I think it blended out came to like four or five percent, but that yeah. was because so on a two thousand dollars sale we it might cost us a hundred dollars to the original creator, but we got that down because we asked them for nothing but the content we provided them with customers they would not have otherwise got, and we did it in a way that did not compete with or confuse what whatever else they were doing in the market. And when you say you provided them with customers, I just want to confirm this, you provided them with revenue they wouldn't have gotten or customers they wouldn't have gotten. That, that's a fair distinction. It was revenue. But also, I would say uh, exposure, you know, to to their likeness. Okay, so so people knew you were using someone else's content. Yeah, we would actually introduce that person very as good. the instructor for the course because yeah. it was okay. the, them very teaching the model. course. So this is a very interesting model because it's almost as if you've built the infrastructure to bring people in, and then you've layered on components to get to profitability. The, exactly, and and to be clear, now you know here we are, almost four years later. We've rebuilt all these courses. We've brought, yes. we have our own in-house faculty. We have our own production facilities and like we've redone everything in at a much higher standard. But again, this whole thing was, it was a, it was a thought experiment as much as a business plan of like, I'm going to prove to the world that you can bootstrap your way up to, and, and, and I'll be perfectly clear. Sure. I'm trying to build a billion dollar enterprise here. I'm still, you know, there's still work to be done. Yes. But what does it say to the world if you can bootstrap your way to a billion dollar enterprise value on a $20,000 credit card without ever borrowing money or bringing on outside capital? That's the American dream. Yeah. And fundamentally, Entra is a company evangelizing a new update to the American dream. So the most integritous way for us to do that is to be our best case in point. Yeah, exactly. Basically, you are your best case study. Totally. In fact, when I launched Entra, when I set up my first email signature, like, you know, if you've ever started a business, you know, there's yeah. that moment when you yes. set up your first email signature, like, yeah. am I the CEO? Am I the founder? Yeah. Am I the, what, the janitor? My job description or my job title was valedictorian. Valedictorian, I like that. I wanted to be our best student from day one. Yeah. Also, it it's almost you know if you were if you were into psychology, you, you're a guy who left high school and you called yourself valedictorian. Yeah. Coming full circle, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if nobody else will give me the title, I'll just claim it <laughs> I'll for myself. create it. I'll earn yeah. it. Okay. Very, very fascinating. I like the thought process that went into this. Because you did play a long game. I know many people, when they launch a product, they want to make profits on it immediately. And I know many people that all they do is they focus on content creation as opposed to figuring out the business model. Mm -hmm. and, and oftentimes I see people with great content and great products, but the business model is really unsound. You just described... 99% of everyone's social media feed in terms of looking yes. at influencers and sponsored ads. It's yeah. high quality content with low quality business models. But there's no business model. It's, it's it, People forget that the number of likes you get is not the measure of success unless you have a way to monetize that. Yeah. Try calling your, your mortgage company and, and paying your, your note with likes. <laughs> is that how that goes. So the business model we sketched out here, has it changed in those four years? 
Oh yeah, it's it's had to. Uh, I would say it's ex more than it, it has changed, but mostly it's expanded. Um, because I mean, I gave you very real numbers that the day one customer acquisition that I could acquire for a hundred dollars. As soon as I ran out of warm audience, like I gave myself a runway by building a warm audience of 2 million people. But as soon as I had shown my ads to those 2 million people and I went from warm to cold and I was still a relative small unknown figure on the internet, yeah, my customer acquisition cost basically doubled as soon as I burned through those 2 million. And I say burned through, I mean, I didn't churn them out. They're still in the audience, yeah. but they've seen the ads. Now I got to yeah. keep casting, you know, widening the net. And my acquisition went from 100 to 200 virtually overnight once my ads were served beyond those 2 million people. So now I had to have a more evolved model just to cover that cost. But I would say also now, because of the trends of the last two years, thanks to our pandemic friend, and to be clear, for anybody that doesn't know, what that means is in the pandemic, with more people sitting at home, more people on the internet, less people engaging in traditional media and you know, think, think of like, signage at like bus stops yeah. and airports and like all the budgets around that stuff got diverted online because you're trying to reach all these people that are stuck at home yeah. and the supply and demand equation on the internet is in a lot of ways a lot tighter than in traditional media because if you think about like a google a page of google search results there's only room for like four ads on the first page and so you might have and that's you know google is probably the most the most extreme example of this but you might have a hundred thousand advertisers trying to reach people on one keyword and 90 percent of those searchers are only going to see four four ads out of a hundred thousand people competing right so yeah. there's a a high marginal volatility of online ads as su the supply and demand equation changes and we felt that over us, us digital marketers felt that dramatically over the last two years. There's a lot of online advertisers that are out of business in the last two years because they just couldn't keep up with rising ad costs. Their business models that worked at $150 CPA didn't work at a $400 CPA. Yeah, that's right? right. And so we've had to, to some degree, we we saw the future and we were already planning. And then COVID tested us to see how fast we could go. But now we are a complete developmental ecosystem. So we don't just sell courses. We have a full-fledged business coaching program. We have a live personal event series. We have seminars. We have professional development, personal development seminars. We have our own software. We built our own funnel builder and kind of light ERP for small businesses software. Mm -hmm. So we have SaaS revenue in our model. So like we're a whole ecosystem with enough different income streams and a high enough lifetime customer value that we can weather storms that your typical, forgive the term, but think of it as like your typical guru course creator. Yeah. They can't, they can't compete with us. You know, at the end of the day, like one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned in marketing is whoever can spend the most to acquire a customer is going to win in the long run. Yeah. That's and right. you have to build your business with that in mind. And I think that is where a lot of people don't think big enough about what their business can ultimately become. And that's why we're, we're still expanding. We're expanding into things like, how do we help business owners scale their business and ultimately exit their business? And how do we attract capital to help people that wanna bring, bring on investors or have an exit or a liquidity event? And we can be the facilitator for that. Or how do we help business owners reinvest their profits into more traditional investments like real estate? And like, we're constantly expanding our thinking in terms of growing our ecosystem, not just selling another product. Like I, I think one of the most valuable paradigm shifts for us was to stop thinking of ourselves as a menu of products and start thinking of ourselves as a platform mm -hmm. with a unified experience and say like, how do we continue to grow the platform? And that's why at this point, in terms of the 
non-venture-backed, non-debt-encumbered entrepreneurial education space, which admittedly, I just made, I just defined that in a way that made it pretty small. Yeah. I don't think anybody competes with us. Yes. And those are the reasons why. So the economics here, the, the ad costs, I know it went through the roof during COVID. It's still high. It's still elevated. Oh, it's it's crazy. I mean, we, we have day, I think two days ago, we spent $400 per customer. To acquire customers. So that means that you had to go into new areas to bring in the revenue, profitable revenue, to cover the high acquisition costs. Yeah. And there's a dynamic here because I, I want to nip something in the bud. If somebody's listening to this, I'm, I'm sure there's someone in your audience who's who's pretty smart and forward-looking going, wait a minute. He started out to prove a point about what's average, what's possible for the average person, but now he's talking about building this whole platform and sure. ecosystem thinking and $400 costs to acquire a $40 customer. And like, how is that remotely possible for the average person? Let me be clear. We have far transcended what is necessary for the average person to build yeah. a tech-enabled business and have a great quality of life, right? Like we're going for a completely different target at this point. And the key is because we're crossing the chasm into what I would call the mainstream. Yeah. It is really expensive to go play in the mainstream. Yes. But so, so basically, the average person can yeah. build a great quality of life business by staying in a, in, a, in a narrow niche and have a fabulously wonderful time without having to fight most of the battles that we're talking about at this point. Sure, it's a question of deciding how much you want to evolve once you right. start as the average person. And you've made the decision that, okay, I want to evolve. And I've made that decision. Exactly. Now, going back to some of the numbers here, you roughly 200,000 customers signed in at an average acquisition cost of $100 is $20 million of ad spend. Yeah. And I, I would say it's it's higher than that because by the time, and you know, now we're at about 260,000 customers. And like I said, we're spending a lot more than a hundred bucks. Sure. But I mean, when we were just starting off, it was about approximately 20, 25 million to get those 200,000 people in. Uh, yeah, I'm, again, I don't want to split hairs, but let's yeah. say that maybe the first hundred thousand we were able to acquire for between a hundred and hundred fifty dollars a piece. I would say by the time we were at our two hundred thousandth customer, we were probably spending over two hundred dollars per acquisition. And it's getting progressively more expensive as you compete right. against established companies with bigger budgets. Correct. Yeah, so I mean, and I don't have any problem sharing that. You know, we spend conservatively two million plus a month on digital ads right now. At our, at our current run rate, and I think that'll probably double in the next 12 months. And do, do you find that as the business is scaling and growing, your margins are increasing? Are you seeing that synergy effect? Uh, I think that yes and no. We've sort of identified three cycles in business that we've now been through two times. I think this is a really important lesson for the bootstrapped entrepreneur. I mean, as soon as you introduce the variable of borrowing money or bringing on capital sources that have long-term return horizons, then this cycle, these cycles no longer apply. But if you're going to do it yourself, which I am a huge advocate for doing it yourself, like there's a super monetary quality of life value in not having to answer to somebody that only cares about the dollars and cents, right? Yeah. Uh, and I've seen it. I mean, I sold my, my last company to a company that was essentially accountable to venture money and part of the reason I got screwed is because their hands were tied because the venture company basically said, nope, you didn't hit your numbers, cut your losses, screw your creditors. We don't care. There's a mercenary game you sign up to play as soon as you bring in certain types of partners, right? But in terms of the controlling your own destiny model, there's three cycles or three phases to the cycle. There's the sales and marketing cycle, like 
we're really focused on optimizing our for revenue. Like we're focusing on acquiring more revenue. Yeah. And that's to fill our war chest so that we have the resources to become the company. And, to, and there's a certain amount of be it before you see it kind of vibe of like, we got to scale revenue so that we can afford to deliver on the promises we're making. This is the, the art, the calculus, right? And so for us, we went from like $100,000 a month company to like $4 million a month company in like 18 months. Now, who we had to be, who we were from an infrastructure and product yes. perspective as a $100,000 company was not remotely equipped to deal with the scale of being, you know, $4 million a month, right? So immediately and, and along the way, I mean, the cycles overlap. They're not, they're not strictly like, yes. you know, one stops and the next starts. We had to get really aggressive about building infrastructure, scaling up people, scaling up product, building technology to quantify and track and improve product-based metrics. You know, there's a totally different set of metrics when you're focused on product and fulfillment. And like, you know, when you're a marketing and sales company, you can grow revenue but you have a deteriorating customer experience relative to scale. The bigger you get, the worse the customer experience gets. So then pretty quickly, you have to start thinking, okay, now how do I start focusing on product and infrastructure so that I don't end up with a big reputation mess on my hands? And then that's when margins start to go the other way because you're investing in product and fulfillment. Yeah. And it takes a long time for product investments back, yeah. to convert into rev ops and more revenue. That, that comes later. And so then there's like, that's the second phase. And then the third phase is like, okay, now I have to optimize this whole thing because I just built infrastructure that chewed up all my profit margin. So now before I try to grow again, I have to focus on staying at the size that I'm at, but acquiring customers more efficiently and fulfilling more efficiently and recapturing my margins so that I can afford to reinvest in the next round of growth. And I would say that we are in the middle to later stage of our second time through the third phase of yeah. that cycle. It's very interesting because, you know, it's one of the great dilemmas of every business entrepreneur. You build something that works, but then you, you're you always running two businesses. You have to run your business of today and you have to be building mm. your business of tomorrow. Exactly. And you've got to figure out how much you're going to starve the business of today as the cash cow to the point whereby you starve it too much and it can't fund the next cycle of growth, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the age-old conundrum. Most companies fail at it. Some get it right. And it's interesting the way you you explain that because most, I think, entrepreneurs don't understand that's a game you have to play. Yeah, and to be clear, I only know this because I am a voracious learner. No pun intended yeah. with my name. I am a voracious learner and I am, you know, I wake up every morning really early and I spend about two hours between my morning routine and my time at the gym and, you know, most people at the gym are rocking out their Metallica or their, yeah. you know, whatever they're listening to. I'm listening to like Ray Dalio. I'm listening yeah. to like, you know, Alex Hormozzi. I'm listening to podcasts and YouTube videos. And but like I'm learning from guys that have built billion dollar companies. And that's where I've, you know, and then I'm just applying what I learn. It's not like you don't wake up one day and just know this stuff. And, and honestly, it's really expensive to learn it just through experience. Like, yes, yeah, go find these people that have done it. And we live in an amazing world, just like shows like this. People share what they know, you know? Well, I really enjoyed this conversation, Jeff. I mean, one of the best conversations we've had, because I love the ability to, to move between strategy and operating detail, which is very rare when you speak to a you know, CEO or any executive member 
Usually the conversations stay at strategy, but at the end of the day, you've got to figure out how these things work. How do the numbers balance? You know, if you don't know how the numbers balance, then you don't have a way to replicate this. Yeah, I, I talk a lot about that um, in actually in our process along the way. I talk a lot about who you're going to learn from. And I think that, you know, I have intentionally tried to be a person like it holds me to a really health, helpful and healthy standard to say, I always want to be a person that the beginning entrepreneur can learn from because it forces me to stay connected to the mechanics like you're pointing out. You know, I, I use a couple examples along the way. I'm like, you know, I'll differentiate. Well, I don't, you know, and I'm not here to throw stones or cast dispersions, but I think the two examples that I use are like Jamie Dimon, I think is one of them. Like Jamie Dimon runs a $2 trillion bank. He yeah. has incredible habits. He's a disciplined person. You can learn a ton. He understands economics. Brilliant guy. But look, you know, let's say your average plumber who's trying yeah. to scale his business from $250,000 a year to $2 million a year so that he can put his kids through college and get home earlier every day. If Jamie Dimon is being interviewed at the World Economic Forum, like, that's a him. fascinating conversation. But yeah. what is that guy on the ground really going to learn from that? He's going to that he's going to be able to use to change his life. I want to be the guy that can help that guy change his life. Yeah, but I think you've captured something that most people forget. Oftentimes, you have to be a translator. Mm. I mean, really good teachers are translators. They, they take something that's incredibly hard, but they give it to you in the right amount that's useful to you and the right language so you can do something with it. Yeah. And many people forget that's a role they play because I've seen many business owners forget that they, they try to translate something for an audience, but then they get caught up in thinking that I need to be more premium. I need to expand into this. I need to do this. But you can always remember who your audience is and what they need. Yeah. You know, I think one of the biggest questions I get from people is around like, well, what business should I start or what service or can I offer? What value do I provide people? And you know, if I were to fundamentally distill what it is that I'm doing in the world now, to your point about translating and who I'm helping and how I'm helping and and how, what I'm staying connected to, I am basically trying to help me from 25 years ago. I'm still trying to help the version yeah. of me that dropped out of okay. high school. And I'm trying to show that version of me that there is a different path and it doesn't have to be so hard. And and I know it's too late to help me then, but I can I can help the next version of me, right? And, yeah, and, the, and, and what's important about that is I don't have to motivate myself to get up early and work hard every day. I am naturally committed. This is my mission. This is what I was put on this earth to do. And so people talk about willpower and drive yeah. and discipline and Jeff, you work so hard. This is not hard for me because that's it's so awesome. true to who I am and what I've experienced. And so I think for everybody that's trying to figure out what do I offer this world, if you'll start with the question, of what have I learned that I wish I could go back and tell myself from 20 years ago? That's probably a pretty good clue to not only some really valuable work that you can do, but something that you'll be really inspired to do and also really enjoy. Yeah, this is something I tell clients who always tell me, Michael, I don't feel inspired to do this. Then this is most likely not your life's purpose. Yes. Because if it's your life's purpose, you're not going to talk to me about being inspired. You are going to be inspired. You're going to be Getting up, as you said, early in the morning, you want to spend more time doing this. Nobody has to make you do it. But I do want to come back to something. It's a, it's a bit of a technical question. So when you started this first program, helping people make this migration, were you focused on a certain niche? Because, you know, there's many things you could do as you, as you become entrepreneurial. So, so how did you set a limit here? 
That's one of the real nuances of our particular business. It's one of the challenges of finding a big untapped white space in the market, in our case, that's so big. We could have picked a niche. For example, uh, there's a book that came out called Doctored, and it came out about 10 years ago. And it said something like, if you ask deep enough questions, you find out that roughly 90% of all doctors are dissatisfied with the state of medicine. Like they would yeah. not advise their kids to become doctors. Yeah. And so we could have taken that statistic and said, all right, we're going to focus our courses on helping doctors leave traditional medicine or leave like hospital systems and yes. big brother medicine, let's call it. And we're going to focus on helping doctors go off and start their own independent practices yeah. and maybe even transition into lifestyle medicine or, or holistic medicine or naturopathic medicine or whatever they feel, they feel more grounded to. We could have focused there. And honestly, it would have been a lot easier for us. But whether it's a blessing or a curse, I'm sort of an evangelist by nature and I kind of want to save everyone. And so to some degree, I, I don't want to say I bit off more than I could chew, but I've had to chew a lot harder for a lot longer to chew what I bit off because I started so broad and I went after the entire white space. So I, so I, don't, I don't know that I would advise everyone to, I would no, say no, do what I'm saying, not what I've done. <laughs> no, don't worry about it because it's interesting to hear this. So this, I mean, we always go back to the first course because it started everything, right? So you have a course that's teaching, let's say a plumber, no, a plumber is already employed. Let's say uh, a, a banker to, to become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You're teaching a housewife to become an entrepreneur. So you, you found some universal principles that are applicable to all of them. Right. And what you teach are those universal principles that all of them would benefit from as they made the transition. Yes, that is, I would say that is our foundation, the Entre Blueprint obviously... or what we now call the Success Path Masterclass. Yeah, it's those 101 first principles of that transition. And then, you know, to be clear, let's say somebody listening to this goes, oh, this sounds amazing. I'm going to go check out this guy's stuff and I'm going to buy these courses. Once you get through the 101, there is a, a decision tree that says, okay, we have, if we're going to build something, we have to specialize. We have to folk pick, a, pick yeah. a path. We call them paths. Some people might call them niches. Some people might call them categories, channels, whatever. We call them paths. And so what we've tried to do is distill the entire modern entrepreneurial landscape into those paths that offer the most opportunity for the most people in as close to a formulaic way as possible. Now, to be clear, there is no copy and paste entrepreneurship. There is no paint by numbers entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship by its nature has to, you know, a person has to bring their unique qualities and experience to the equation. This kind of idea that's given the internet a bad name of like, oh, just, you know, copy me and you'll, you'll get my results. Like that's ridiculous. It doesn't work yes. that way. Right. But there are general paths. And so, for example, you can go down the path of like providing some sort of B2B services. So yeah. that could be marketing services, that could be technical services, that could be consulting services, that could be, you know, call it agency type services, right? Yeah. You could go down the path of being in the knowledge business, saying, I'm going to create a course, or I'm going to give coaching or consulting, or I'm going to share my accumulated knowledge over the course of my life based on expertise in a, in a subject. You know, those are broad paths. And we have specialized courses and facilitation groups and all this, you know, kind of hands-on training and and a, and a pretty robust process for helping people succeed down those paths. But we bring everybody in through the very one-size-fits-all, first principles-based education. And once you go through that, you can self-select and say, yeah, I think I'm serious about this. I think I want to go after that. And then we have an assessment process that helps you identify a good path as a, as a starting place. Very interesting. Jeff, 
I really enjoyed speaking to you. I think our audience is going to love this because we were able to lay out the strategy and get them to understand the numbers, which I think is very important. Because you know, if you want to go into business, you got to know the numbers. Yeah, and and I'll say this: a lot of the principles and the science behind what we're talking about. This is not like I'm in a unique use case of these of these principles to say, hey, I'm starting a platform that helps people transition to you know from employment to entrepreneurship. Yeah. That's not the only way these principles apply. I'm in I'm right now in conversations with a, a Fortune 100 tech company here in the U.S. to come in and do essentially conversion consulting and and optimizing their sales process. Again, it's it's one of the big U.S.-based tech companies. And I'm not going in there to try to convert their employees into quitting their jobs and becoming entrepreneurs. I'm just going yeah. in there to help them optimize their sales and conversions because these principles, like this is business in the modern world. In the modern world, like you have to liquidate a customer and it's either long-term in a way that pays off a lender or an investor, or if you learn how to do it short-term, you own your future. And that's what I'm really all about, even as much as I am about helping people you know, go their own way with entrepreneurship is like giving all businesses the ability to control their destiny by getting better at the principles of good business and sort of getting out of the funny money world that we live in, where everything is like orders of magnitude of inflation and lending and derivatives and like fuzzy math and like... Yeah. I, I, this is where I think that what we're talking about can really improve the state of the world is we can deleverage the world by making biz, helping businesses build better math equations by understanding the stuff that we're talking about. I like that because there's patterns to everything. And what you're trying to do is identify the patterns, pattern recognition, and then apply it and teach it to your clients. Jeff, amazing episode. I look forward to having you on the show in the future. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Great questions. And I've really appreciated it. Take care. Have a good day. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.